My players killed one of the most powerful people in the kingdom by accident. I, the DM, make a homebrew super large campaign set in a land called Vea Pratia, made up of 33 states. The players were still early in the campaign and within the first state, Eastron. The group was a tiefling wizard, Arcus, a tabaxi cleric, Rain Under Sharp Plains, nicknamed Rain, and a mousefolk druid, Hemway. They were backed up by two tabaxi rogues, Wicker and Stump. For some needed background, I followed proper naming conventions for the tabaxi, that they are named after a metaphorical or literal description of their home, or station upon their birth. Wicker's full name was Wicker Basket by the door. You can guess his backstory. He was the romantic companion of Stump, a strong, hulking tabaxi who was named Stump by his old mistress, the powerful Scarlet Lady. One of the three most powerful people in the land, with the ear of the Queen. The Scarlet Lady ran most of the legitimate and criminal organizations in the entire kingdom, wielding huge political and social power. She would, in fact, be the primary villain of Chapter 2 of the epic story. The players were currently on Chapter 1. Stump had been raised in her care as a slave, where he did everything for her, but he was also abused by her in the worst ways you can think of. She called him Stump as an insult, to say that he was too stupid for anything else. He'd escaped years ago, an escape that had led to one of his other friends, a fellow slave, to die. A death he blamed both her and himself for. Wicker had been the only one that had brought joy back into his life. The group were in a forest that no one enters. Those who enter do not get out. It was known as the Cairnswood. They discovered that the reason no one escaped was because it was protected by a hidden village full of centaurs, who killed anyone that trespassed in the forest. However, due to a medallion they had from a previous centaur, they'd aided in the previous town. They were proven to be friends and were allowed to pass through their small town in the middle of the forest, the town of Berkton. While in the village, they found children had been going missing and through some clever sleuthing, found a serial killer centaur among the herd in the form of the tavern owner. He'd been stealing children, defiling them, and murdering them. He claimed to be doing this to protect the herd so they would never overpopulate and wouldn't grow beyond the boundaries of the forest that kept them safe from those that would do them harm. The other centaurs were horrified at this. He was subsequently executed by the townspeople. Unable to handle what had happened, both Stump and Wicker offered to stay within the town, take up the running of the now ownerless tavern, and put down better roots for the future of their life. After a tearful goodbye, my players wished them the best and moved on. The players were avoiding the main road, known as the Purple Road. It was a royal route that threaded its way through all the states of Vea Prachia and led to the capital. Paladins, the continent's main source of power and guards, used this route as their patrol and travel route often, and thus they had smartly chosen to avoid the road. Sadly, they couldn't. They needed to cross the road this time on their route. After leaving the forest, they crossed a field and hid behind a small rise in the ground as they spied the road, making sure the coast was clear. But it wasn't. The dice favored a perception check, and they spotted an approaching convoy. The convoy was made up of six paladins on horseback and a seventh on foot at the rear, all escorting a carriage with a crimson insignia on it, one that none of them recognized as they were still new to the area. They recognized the paladin at the back without a horse, Brol. He had helped them in the beginning and had originally been assigned to escort them over the Purple Road after they'd been arrested for xenophobic reasons when they first arrived in the land. Their escape, they'd known, would get him in trouble, but they valued their own safety more and thus had put him in jeopardy. He was in manacles when they saw him then, at the rear of the escort. 
The mouse folk was the only one from the country, and thus was not wanted by the guard. He padded over and made small talk with the paladins, with the aim of finding out if Brol was going to be alright. They didn't like the guy due to him being a paladin, but they didn't want him to come to harm. Through conversation, they found out that he was on his way to being punished when they reached their destination with this highly important individual in the carriage. The intention by me, the DM, was for them to let the carriage pass by, to discover Brol later on, and for this to raise questions. They were, after all, only three level 2 characters, and these six paladins were all level 5s. They didn't stand a chance, but my players were not to be hindered in their quest for justice. Arcus, the tiefling, formulated a plan. First, the tabaxi cleric Rain ran back to the forest and through it, following the safe paths all the way back into the centaur town of Berkton. There, he called in the favor they'd garnered from helping their village with the serial killer. The entire town agreed to come to their aid. He led them into the Cairnswood, through the safe mushroom paths to the area they had chosen. Second, and after waiting one minute for the tabaxi to be well on his way, the druid mousefolk Hemway changed into a horse, ran up to the paladins, turned and kicked the side of the carriage hard. Some rolls happened to determine some outcomes, and it worked. The paladins gave chase, leaving their carriage and chasing the horse hard. The mousefolk druid in horse form rolls a crit and manages to outrun the guards, and he rushes into the forest. A roll keeps the guards on their tail. This was not simply allowed, they got lucky. Between a check for the guards' intelligence, to the mousefolk's attempt to get them to follow him, to whether or not he was fast enough to outrun them, to whether or not they were smart enough not to follow him into the supposedly dangerous forest, Somehow, they rolled 18s, 19s, and several crit 20s on the die. Thirdly, the tiefling stands up and approaches. Brol runs forward, shocked and confused at the ensuing events. With a little magic and heat, the locks on the manacles were broken, and Brol was freed. You shouldn't have done this, Brol warned, looking bewildered. Who's in the carriage? Arcus asked curiously as he approached it. Brol replied, someone important. Arcus nodded and used magic to freeze the door closed. Fourthly, the paladins rushed through into the trees after the runaway horse, and into the arrows of thirty centaurs. They were blessed by the cleric, and their arrows flew true. They hit and critted and tore and punctured armor easily. One by one, they fell. By a sheer stroke of luck from the dice, the final one left alive on low HP was the leader himself, injured on one knee, staring up at the centaurs and the small, unassuming tabaxi cleric approaching him. You'll never get away with this, you filthy tabaxi! The paladin yelled violently. I just did, Rain replied with a righteous grin. The cleric struck him down with divine wrath. The paladins they were not even supposed to face had been defeated without a single loss of life. The group went back and looked upon the frozen carriage. Bro, said Rain, nodding to the paladin who nodded respectfully back. Rain wasn't a fan of paladins. A scar across his face that marred his complexion was a gift from one in his past, and thus he had trust issues. But he looked to Brol now with more respect, more kindness. The tabaxi approached the paladin and reached up, touching his fingers along his own scarred face. He looked at Brol and gave him a wary glance over. Paladins have never been a friend to me. The look on Brol's face showed he understood what was being said. You helped us when we first got here, and we repaid that by running. For that, I'm sorry, especially as us doing that seems to have caused you harm. Brol reached up and ran his hand over his braided head. You were only trying to survive. I can understand that. He gave the small cleric a warm smile and offered his hand. Rain under sharp planes took it and shook that hand readily. You should go, and please, don't come back. I imagine if they were upset at you before, now they'll be pissed. The tabaxi gave the paladin a wry grin. 
Broll looked a little nervously from them to the carriage with the frozen door and the muffled yelling from its interior. What are you going to do? At those curious words, the group went to the carriage, unfroze the door, and opened it. There, staring them in the face, was the Scarlet Lady, third most powerful person in the entire realm, huge political and social influencer, vastly important to the politics of the entire nation, and now at their mercy. They considered what to do with her, knowing that if they let her go, there was nowhere her influence could not get them. The cleric turned his eyes back to the paladin. You should go, he said again with warning in his voice. Broll gulped, nodded, turned and ran. The group looked back to the old woman. What would they do, they'd been asked. They had little choice, but it would seem that her fate, they decided, was not theirs to decide. It did not belong to them, so they locked her in the carriage and took it with them as they once again ventured back into the forest, to the centaur town of Berkton. They rolled the carriage up to the tavern. They called out Wicker and his companion, and when they were ready, they opened the carriage. I'll have your heads, she screamed, but she was only a woman, an old woman, staring at them with rage-filled eyes as she was surrounded by a tiefling, a tabaxi, a mousefolk, and an entire town of centaurs glaring down at her. She turned towards the tavern, and her eyes locked onto those of one she knew, Stump. He saw her, and the expression on his face was not one that could easily be described. You! She screamed, glaring at him. Me! He replied. His voice was as still as water, with no emotion, no coldness, simply there. As though he felt he were dreaming. Wicker turned to his love, a paw on the larger tabaxi's chest, and said softly, You don't have to do this. We can go back inside and go right now. Stump could only stare. In her eyes, he saw his life. The death, the whippings, the beatings, the rapes. And the last thing he saw were different eyes other than hers. Those of his friend, who had run beside him. Eyes he'd seen lose their life, as a hail of arrows had skewered his form. This was for him. Stump approached the old woman. What are you doing? She demanded in a confused voice, as though she couldn't believe this had even happened. As though the very thought of it was incomprehensible. She backed off, fell over, scrambled away from him. He walked calmly, approaching her step by step, until he lowered his hands to her, wrapped them around her neck, and broke it. The team left after that, Wicker and Stump still staying behind, and they left with heavier hearts than they'd arrived. I look back at that moment a lot. My players had broken my second chapter. The political ramifications of her death and disappearance would yield huge consequences, the entire second chapter would be altered by the, the Scarlet Lady was dead. The direction With a single stroke and not a small amount of luck, my players had upended my entire plan for the direction of the campaign. It wasn't just one I was quick to learn Roll that they had a knack the for this. In a world specifically designed around my players having the ability to do anything they wanted, I quickly learned that what well they really wanted was to break the status the quo I had put in place. The second major instance of this came rapidly on the heels of the first. For the important and needed context, it should be known what became of the Scarlet Lady's remains. Knowing that she would be searched for in her last known area, they didn't want their new friends, the Centaurs, and their hidden village of Burton to be threatened by any that might come snooping around. So, the party disposed of the Scarlet Lady in a manner that would guarantee she could never be found, and then took her carriage north, beyond the Purple Road, and to the lake, where they damaged it, stripped it of all its valuables, tore out the silk along its finery, and dumped it unceremoniously. When enemies came to call, it would look like a robbery, and they'd likely be searching the lake for her body. With this grim task finished, they continued on their way. The players, Arcus the Tiefling, Hemway the Mousefolk, and Rain the Tabaxi, after a few days, found themselves approaching the border of Estrin Astrua. 
The state of Estrin's border was lined with a cliff's edge that couldn't be passed, and the only way into Astrua would be through the small city of Weldstone. Therein lies their first major obstacle. Passage across the border was not free. It was in fact quite expensive. In an effort to gain some level of coin, they checked the guard's barracks for some local bounties and found that a local loan shark was offering a lot of money just to have someone that owed them money to be found. It seemed like a good gig, so they went off to meet this man. His name was Manson, and it was immediately understood that he was no one's friend, certainly not theirs. The individual admitted to being a mob boss, to controlling things around here. The information alone was enough for the tabaxi cleric of the party, Rain Under Sharp Plains, to immediately refuse to take the job. The cleric had a strong set of morals on him, and they didn't allow the encouragement of any criminal enterprise that founded itself on the suffering of others. And this guy fit that bill to a T. But it wasn't enough to simply say no, for the cleric didn't turn away from such things. He enjoyed breaking them. Knowing that Manson intended to find the man that owed him money and likely injure the fellow, perhaps even kill him, he convinced the party to go immediately to the guard. Therein lies their second major obstacle. It was rapidly revealed to them that going after Manson would be a fool's errand. The captain of the guard, a decent man it seemed, informed them that Manson and his two competitors, Travis and Bianca, owned pretty much everything in town. They were the real power behind the mayor, and half the guards were in their pocket. No evidence had ever managed to be held against them, their holdings were locked up tight, and witnesses to their crimes always seemed to fall ill or disappear. It should be noted that these individuals had goons aplenty, strong individuals at their beck and call, and this town was originally designed to only be a stop-off, to earn a little bank, an example of the corrupt nature of the land of Aprarchia. But it was not to be left alone. This party, as I said before, did not accept the status quo. With the wizard tiefling Arcus smiling encouragingly from behind him, the cleric approached the captain of the guard and told him of a plan he'd come up with. The guard had never managed to gain proof or evidence of holdings, bribes, assets, anything. Nothing they could use to crush or take out Mason, Travis, or Bianca. So rather than searching for that evidence to try and bring them in, they were going to convince the mob bosses to bring the evidence themselves and turn themselves in. The plan was thus. Upon entering the city, they'd seen a local barracks outside that looked to be disused and in disarray. It had old banners on the outside and it would do quite nicely. Step one was to write out, in elegant scrawl, a letter to each mob boss, Bianca, Travis, and Manson. The letter read as such, I wish to take claim to some of this city's holdings. Bring a detailed account of all assets and dealings to the barracks outside of town in five hours. You may bring a singular guard with you for your own comfortability. My initial offer is for you to keep a total of 33% of your holdings. Consider this offer and which assets you would like to retain in the interim before we meet. The letter was signed, The Scarlet Lady. It's important to note that her name was particularly important to their plan. The concept of a hostile takeover of mob territory would, in most circumstances, result in a gang war. However, this was the Scarlet Lady. The Scarlet Lady's power, as mentioned in Part 1, was such that if any of them tried to resist, they would not wake up the next morning. They had little choice. Did they doubt the letter's authenticity? They couldn't afford to. They'd undoubtedly bring their strongest warriors as their guard, anticipating for it to be a trap. But just in case it was legitimate, they'd never show up to a meeting with the Scarlet Lady without bringing said information on their assets and dealings. As such, doubtful or otherwise, the mob boss's compliance was guaranteed. And to seal this as a solid fact, a square of fabric was placed with each letter. A strip of regal quality silk bearing the Scarlet Lady's insignia, stripped from her very carriage and entirely authentic. The letters were sent off. The second step was to use the aforementioned barracks outside of town. 
They used prestidigitation to make the banners fly the Scarlet Lady's insignia, and with a large collection of trustworthy guards that were not on the mob boss's payroll, they began setting things up. Arcus, the wizard tiefling, wore a cloak to hide his appearance and sat behind a screen they'd set up. A large cloth barrier so that only his silhouette could be seen. A table was set up and nearby it, a druidic web trap was set in a likely spot. The old cells of the barracks were also covered in cloth, the place made to look like it had been cleaned up specifically for the Scarlet Lady's uses. Within those cells, guards lie in wait. The fateful five hours were over. Manson, Bianca, and Travis all approached the barracks. Beside them were three guards, one for each of them, and beside Bianca was a man yielding a sword that was encrusted with jewels. He bore himself as a man that knew how to use it. The other guards were steering clear of him, indicating that he was likely a formidable fighter. Ushered into the barracks, they saw the long, roomy interior, the cloth at the back with the silhouette of the Scarlet Lady. They slowly approached, ready for anything. Hemway, the mouse folk, waited under the desk, his small statue allowing him to remain out of sight. Rain, the tabaxi cleric, stood nearby in smart clothes, arms behind his back, and seemingly at the beck and call of the Scarlet Lady. This too helped sell this, as it was known that the Scarlet Lady had a fancy for tabaxi. Do you have them? Rain asked in a formal tone. Nervously, all three mob bosses revealed thick bonded folders, full of everything the guard would ever need to lock them away. Those three folders were placed on the table, and they waited. The trap sprung. The web suddenly wrapped around them, and a rapid cast of sleep managed to knock unconscious every single one of them, except the guard with the jeweled sword. He fought the spell, used his blade to tear his way out of the web, and stood up. But pieces of the web were still wrapped around him, and the web was flammable. Arcus ripped aside the cloth, threw a blast of fire at the guard, who screamed as fire engulfed him. He dropped his sword, which was immediately picked up by Rain, who then drove it forward. The blade struck true and pierced the guard through the chest. He fell dead. The guards came out, manacled the sleeping mob bosses, and took them away. The detailed reports of all their holdings were more than enough to put them away for a very, very long time. Using the Scarlet Lady's name, the captain said, looking back at the party as the mob bosses were taken. That probably wasn't smart. What'll you do if she finds out? The tabaxi looked to his companions, the mouse folk unable to stop himself grinning at the humor of it, and even Arcus, his usual stoic self, cracked a smile. The tabaxi looked back with his own confident smile. Oh, I think we'll be fine. The city had just been an example of corruption. They were supposed to use it to gain coin and step through into Astra richer for it, and wiser about the land of Aprarsia and its corruption that seemed to seep into its very soil. But the status quo was not accepted, and rather than allowing it to stand, my players fought and liberated an entire city of mob rule, a feat I once again had not thought possible. But what were the consequences? Could they maintain the illusion they'd created with the Scarlet Lady's carriage as a simple robbery? What were the results of using her name? And how far would a story such as that spread in this corrupt land? Well, only I, as the DM, can answer that. And I don't think I will. Just yet.